0: If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hola. Hello.
1: This call is being translated. Abuela,
2: listen to what my phone can do.
1: Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer.
3: Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva.
1: Wow. Wow now, tell
3: me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tu sabes lo que dije. You know
1: what I said.
3: Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy A.I. on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer.
1: Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.
3: so there is a real strategic necessity as far as hitler's concerned and the nazis are concerned to hold on to normandy as absolutely long as possible that's really why they fight so close to the coast
2: that was james holland discussing the battle for normandy in 1944
4: But I really never quite expected
2: to be this close to what may be, you know, the the skull of medieval royalty. And that was Sarah Gristwood in the crypt of Tewkesbury Abbey. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents or take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for the latest subscription offers. And we also have many digital editions, including for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. If you want details of those, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. Next week, we'll see the 70th anniversary of the Allied landings in Normandy. D-Day opened up a new Western Front in the battle against Nazi Germany and helped set the course for a divided Europe after the Second World War. To get the lowdown on this momentous event, I caught up with military historian James Holland, who is presenting an upcoming documentary on the landings and has written an accompanying article The latest issue of BBC History magazine. The premise of your article is that D-Day and the Normandy campaign have been rather unfairly done down. Why have you come to this view? Well
3: I suppose um, really it's it's, it's to do with that kind of missing third level of war. I mean I think the historiography of of the Second World War and particularly D-Day and Normandy has really concentrated on the strategic level, the kind of Overall aims of of what it's about, what the Germans are trying to do, what the Allies are trying to do, and the tactical level—the man in the foxhole, the pilot flying his P forty seven Thunderbolt—you um, know—the actual engagements happening on the ground. What has been given fairly sort of scant regard is the operational level, which is the nuts and bolts and and how it all works together, and, and ha- that kind of the logistics, the supply, the kind of how you how you make how you gel the strategic and the tactical levels together and and it's that level that has been kind of understudied or or hasn't been looked at in conjunction with the other two I suppose and when you do start looking at that you you start realizing that there is a whole level of complexity to this which has just been left out of the story, which then throws open all sorts of different perspectives, I suppose.
2: What are people saying, what are historians saying that, that's giving this kind of negative pull over D-Day? What are their criticism of it?
3: Well, for I mean, when you say D-Day, I'm, I'm I'm talking more about the whole Normandy campaign rather than D-Day itself. Um, I think particularly the the Allied under the underwhelming effort of the Allies that that somehow the Allies are bashing their heads against a brick wall of highly motivated, highly trained, tactically flexible German troops and not getting very far. And this is criticism that happened at the time. I mean, you know, there was an appreciation of of how the battle was going to play out beforehand, which was broadly, you know, there was nothing more than guidelines. But, you know, for example, on sort of D plus 17, you know, just after a couple of weeks after D-Day, it was expected in the pre-invasion appreciation that the Allies would be some 50 miles inland, uh, which is why they hadn't really particularly bothered with training To fight through bocage country for example um part of the d-day um the pre-invasion plans have been to capture the high ground south and southeast of Caen, um which high ground is obviously advantageous but also from there we could start building airfields so there is this expectation that, that the allies are going to be further in than they are and the germans don't do what they've done previously in the war they don't wait for the enemy to come forward engage them, then retreat, Then retreat, leaving a skeleton force behind, making the Allies fully deploy. What that does is lead to a very slow, attritional retreat back. But because of the strategic importance of Normandy, Hitler insists that there can be no trading of space for time, as there is in the Eastern Front. Or indeed as there has been to a certain extent in in Italy and North Africa, and they have to fight really close to the close to the um to the coast and actually this this has just been ignored you know this this, this fact that that it doesn't really matter where the Germans are being defeated as long as they're being defeated and actually it worked it plays to the allies' advantage that the Germans do insist on fighting close to the beach because obviously that means allied lines of supply are are shorter it means that the Germans are within range of offshore naval guns, um, which is very much to <laughs> their disadvantage. Um, and, and while their own lines of supply are, are further. But the reason for this, of course, is that once Normandy goes, then Brittany is going to follow the V1 rocket launch uh, launch sites, which in which Hitler holds great stall, are just in the northern France, not far from Normandy, in the Pas de Calais. Um, you know, he's still hoping that that is going to be decisive, even though clearly it's not. The Battle of the Atlantic has been defeated in May 1943, but there's new Mark 20 U-boats coming in, and and Hitler still hopes that they might be able to achieve something. Um, they're not going to be if those Atlantic ports have, uh, are in Allied hands. So there is a real strategic uh, necessity, as far as Hitler's concerned and the Nazis are concerned, to hold on to Normandy as absolutely long as possible. That's really why they they fight so close to the to the coast. But what that does mean that all those pre-invasion Appreciations, this sort of estimation of what's going to happen gets completely blown out the window, um, and therefore the allies are forced to fight so close to the coast. But of course, if you're Eisenhower or your Churchill or your uh, or your Roosevelt, what you're seeing is you're looking at lines on a map, and you're seeing allies just sort of not going any distance at all Uh, and that starts to cause you worry because in exactly the same way that Hitler wants to keep the V1 rocket sites functioning the allies want to get them out of the way as quickly as possible Um, they're also very mindful of the huge advances of the Red Army on the Eastern Front and so there is this political imperative to get on with it and that starts to kind of mar the whole image of what is happening in Normandy which is further compounded by the fact that Monty is just so very bad at explaining to his superiors exactly what is going on. If Montgomery had said to Eisenhower, look, I know this isn't going quite according to plan, but don't worry about it. You know, it's not us that's banging uh, our heads against a brick wall of panzer divisions. It's the panzer divisions that are banging their heads against a brick wall of of the allies. You know, that's that's far more important. What's happening is, is we are grinding them into dust hold your nerve, it will be fine, because if we can defeat them entirely here, then once the floodgates are open, then we'll be away. And of course, that's exactly what happens.
2: So your contention is we have to judge the whole Normandy campaign, compare that to what, was, what the objectives were and see if they succeeded in that case.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very interesting that, you, you know, that there's, a, there's a rather wonderful diary by a chap called Chester B. Hanson, who was the senior aide to General Bradley, who was the American Ground Forces Commander. And Hansen keeps a very, kept a very detailed diary. And there's this one entry he makes where he's visited by a senior reporter from the New York Times. And the New York Times guy goes, you know, this is ridiculous. You know, you're not getting anywhere. You've got to take more risks. You've got to just go for it. And Chester Hansen makes the point that this journalist is you know, he's being an armchair historian. He's looking at it from from the maps. He's looking at it from what he's hearing in the corridors of power. He's not looking at it from the perspective of those on the ground. They're not They're not realising the complexity of the situation, and they're not realising that actually it works to the Allies' advantage to, to defeat the enemy really close to the coastline, rather than having a long, drawn-out campaign across the whole of France.
2: Am I right to say that there's another criticism that there was too much loss of Allied lives in D-Day and, and the early Normandy campaign. Would that be a fair criticism?
3: I don't think it is. I mean, what the Allies work out in the Second World War and, and what Britain works out you know, before war um, opens is that what they want to do is they're going to fight a highly technological, mechanically-based war that is going to keep the number of guys that are actually fighting at the coalface to a bare minimum. And this they do spectacularly well. But you can only protect those people so much. And the bottom line is that technology hasn't advanced sufficiently that you can avoid high casualties at the front. So the numbers of men at the front line are comparatively few. I mean, in terms of the British Army, the British Army never grows more than 55 divisions in the entire Second World War. You know, Germany goes into the invasion of the West in 1940 with 135 divisions for example. Um, So, you know, it's always been our intention to be very manpower light at the coalface. The problem is, is if you are at the coalface, your chances of getting through it unscathed are almost, you know, they're very, very bad. They're kind of, they're worse than they are in in the First World War, for example. So overall, proportionally. And th- there's just no way of avoiding that. And and what the Allies have worked out by the beginning of 1944 is that the way to defeat the Germans in the field is not to try and ape them, not to try and do what the Germans do, but to do what they do and use their own resources to the best possible way they can. And the way to do that is to build up a huge arsenal of firepower, which they can have, which they have the, the, the money and uh, factories and machinery to be able to achieve and use that to absolutely hammer their enemy. What they also realize is that the Germans have a sort of deep rooted part of their DNA is to constantly counterattack. It all goes back to, you know, Clausewitzian theories of war and all the rest of it. So, what the German theory behind that is that what you do is you let your enemy come on, and when they've overextended, they're at their weakest, they're at the most disconnected, then you counterattack with a big, big, big punch. The problem with that is that it's quite easy to save lives while you're dug in in a defensive position. I mean, if you're in a foxhole, the only way someone's going to kill you is if if a shell absolutely lands on your head. Um, so casualties can be quite light, and you can maintain that defensive position qu- Comparatively easily and and without too many losses. The point is that if the moment you do a counterattack, you have to get out of those foxholes, get out of those defensive positions, and expose yourself. And the moment they do that, the allied the full allied arsenal, in the case of Normandy, of, of artillery, air power, and naval power, absolutely mashes them, um, and they get completely um, they get completely blown to pieces. And it happens every single time. Um, and what the Allies are doing is, is, is probing forward in an effort, you know, that the, the infantry and the armor are the carrot that is to, is to lure the, the Germans out of those defensive positions. And it works spectacularly well. It's just very unfortunate if you happen to be one of those infantry or one of those tank guys that has to do the probing forward and has to be the carrot.
2: Do you think that films and programmes such as um, Band of Brothers and Saving Private Ryan, however good they are, have skewed our our understanding of D-Day and Normandy?
3: Well, yes, definitely, because I think um, most people still think that the D-Day was a predominantly American show, and, you know, it's just not true. I mean, all three service chiefs were were British. Um, two-thirds of the air forces used were British. Two-thirds of the men landed were British, if you include uh, the Canadians who were part of, a, you know, one of the British dominions. Three-quarters of the warships are British. Three-quarters of the landing craft are British. So the idea that it's a, a predominantly American show just isn't the case. So yes, they have skewed it, but I mean, you know, I'm a great fan of of both films and particularly Band of Brothers, I think is superb miniseries and much of what they've done to depict what it was like being an American paratrooper fighting through D-Day, Normandy and through to the end of the war is, uh, is about as true a depiction as you're ever going to get. Of course, there's little things that are mistakes and the purists can pick up on that. But, you know, it's a fantastic series and, you know, particularly the the portrayal um, of the taking out of the four guns at Breakall Manor, for example, on D-Day, is is just you know it's brilliantly done. But of course, you're only seeing it from the American perspective, and I think that is one of the failings of the American retelling of the war that they do tend to look at things through the narrow prism of their own experience. And I sort of feel that seventy years on, you know, that's not terribly helpful. I think it's much more important to look at things in the round and the three hundred and sixty degree perspective.
2: For the Allies, D-Day is clearly one of the defining moments of the war. But how important do you think it was to the overall outcome of the conflict? At that point, weren't Germany essentially defeated anyway?
3: Yeah, they. I think Germany was finished. Uh, and it's very interesting to look at the point where Germany really should have thrown in the town. I think you can argue that it's a kind of the winter of 1942, Maybe it's Stalingrad. Maybe it's uh, Tunisia in May nineteen forty-three. Maybe it's as late as Kursk. But but you know, there's a good case for saying it's it's early. It's the winter of nineteen forty-two, just because they've got to a point where you know they're no longer going to win. And it's very interesting when you look at Germany in the First World War. I mean, why do they sue for an armistice? They sue for an armistice because they can't afford it anymore, and they're clearly not going to win. So on that basis, um, the winter of nineteen forty-two certainly seems a valid argument. I think the difference is that Hitler's. <laughs> you know, he's not normal you know for Hitler it's all or nothing he doesn't talk of grey errors he doesn't talk of sort of half victories or half losses it's it's there will be a thousand year Reich or there will be Armageddon there's nothing in between so such is his will that they are going to fight on until the bitter end but you know what D-Day does the successful invasion of France what it does is it, it, it seals the German fate an awful lot quicker and there is absolutely you know doubt that strategically Normandy and France are of much more strategic importance to Hitler and the, and and Germany than the Eastern Front is. I mean, I think we've been very overly seduced in recent years by the huge casualty figures in in the Eastern Front. And, you know, while no one should be belittling what happened on the Eastern Front, I think one does have to be careful to not equate casualty figures with strategic importance. Do you think that one of the, the most
2: important things about D-Day is is what that meant for the post-war world, that the Western Allies had a stake in Europe afterwards.
3: Yeah, it's very, very interesting. I, mean, I was talking to, to Michael Wood, you know, one of your columnists and a great historian, just the other day. and He, he, he met Monty and had a long conversation with him um, some years ago, uh, in, in 1966 actually, in the 900th um, anniversary of, of, the, of uh, the Normandy invasion of Britain. And he was when he spoke to Montgomery, all he was talking about was his post-war disappointments and, you know, his sadness that uh, Europe had been split up and the Iron Curtain had been developed and all the rest of it. And, you know, and, and he still profoundly felt that had they followed his strategy, that none of that would have happened and that Germany would have remained in the West and blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, you can argue the toss about all that. But certainly it would have been a hell of a lot worse if we hadn't invaded
2: You yourself, in your work, have met, I know, lots and lots of veterans of D-Day. What kind of impression do you get of how they view the events now from this distance of 70 years?
3: Well, it's very interesting. You have to be careful because a lot of people, um, they tend to kind of put what they've read subsequently uh, about the overall state of the campaign and what happened, they they sort of absorb that into their own personal testimony. So you have to look at it, you have to sort of talk to them with a certain amount of caution. And I think what really amazes me is... And this leads on to the sort of more of the general thesis is is that when you talk to American and British troops, you realise that they they have a better, particularly, you know, I suppose both tank commanders and officers and so on and senior NCOs rather than sort of privates who are just sort of trying to keep their head down. There is a greater level of understanding, appreciation of of, of the fighting art and what needs to be done and a sort of sassiness and, and a kind of sort of level of experience that doesn't sit with the kind of traditional view of, of British troops constantly kind of being stodgy and endlessly brewing up tea and not really bothering. And, and ditto Americans, this idea that they're kind of sort of, you know, they don't bother shaving and they, they call officers by their first name and they're all a bit slack. That doesn't ring true to me before I hear them saying. Similarly, when you talk to German veterans, you don't get any sense at all that they understand concepts like mission command or austrag tactic, or that they've, they're they particularly well trained. I mean, I was talking to a, a German Falsham a German paratrooper the other day from the 3rd Fallschirmjäger Division. And, you know, his paratroop training was was three weeks long. That was basically his training. Then he was sent to Brittany, where he continued training in position. And what they trained to do was route marches, laying mines, digging foxholes, a bit of firing. I mean, they never once trained with tanks, for example. And you sort of think, well, they're the elite ground forces in, in the Wehrmacht, and yet this idea of them being sort of tactical geniuses and hugely flexible and operationally flexible it just doesn't really ring true and i mean you've been over
2: to normandy i know quite a few times how do people who live there now how do they view these events
3: well it's interesting you you might expect them to be quite bitter about it i mean you know con was almost completely obliterated casualties of as many as thirty thousand french civilians lots of villages completely blown from the face of the earth fallets the ancient capital of the Conqueror, pretty much blown to dust and low, completely blown to dust. You might expect them to be quite bitter about it, but you never get a sense of that at all. I mean, I suppose it's because it's such an industry over there. I mean, they have their farming um, and, that's, uh, and they have the Normandy industry, the tourist in- industry, and I get the impression they're all very proud of it, really.
2: Do you think the French story sometimes gets missed out of narratives of D-Day and the Normandy campaign because they weren't actually do much of the
3: active fighting yeah well they certainly weren't until Patton landed in Brittany. yes i suppose it does to a certain extent there's been a sort of trend in recent years to sort of play down soe and and the resistance movement and everything but you know resistance it's it's interesting i mean you know you you get sort of new perspectives from from what's happened in places like afghanistan where you can see that a bunch of ill-trained poorly equipped fighters can hold up the most modern, sophisticated armed forces the world has ever known without too much difficulty. So I think the problems the resistance caused to German forces in France and, and the kind of headache they provide, the fact that German troops can never entirely relax because at any time they might be, you know, someone might be taking a pot shot at them or a bridge might be blown up or a railway blown up or whatever. Um, I think that has a kind of more debilitating factor than people probably have given them credit in recent years and also the intelligence they were gathering was was very important for us in the in the build-up and in terms of part of creating a picture of what was going on in normandy but also to help with the deception plan so i think all that's important I, i also think it's very unfortunate that de gaulle is so routinely ridiculed by by historians because actually i don't think the allies played it terribly well i mean you know clearly de gaulle was arrogant Clearly, he was a pain in the neck and insufferable in many ways. But the big problem was that the Americans refused to accept him as de facto leader of uh, of free France. And even though the British had accepted him as head of the Committee of National Liberation in, in the summer of 1943, um, and even though de Gaulle was by 1944 clearly the figurehead of a, a unifying factor behind um, French resistance. The Americans still refuse to accept him as de facto leader because um, they said that, you know, he could only be leader when proper democratic elections had been carried out. Uh, and actually, that wasn't very helpful because I think you could have said to do You know, we could have said to De Gaulle, look, you've got to have elections, but you're de facto leader. But you are only de facto leader. You're not you know, authorized leader until those elections happen. But in the meantime, you know, we're happy to give you, give you our support, which indeed they do at the end of August. It could have been a hell of a lot messier than it actually was because had they retreated across France, the Germans retreated across France in the way that their allies were expecting, the battle could have been a lot more uh, drawn out uh, and a lot more bloody uh, and a lot longer. And as allied forces pushed forward and were concentrating on defeating Germany, they would have taken their eye off the ball on civil affairs as they had in in Italy and into that power vacuum just as happened in Baghdad in 2003 would have come all sorts of heinous elements. French politics before the war was incredibly fractious uh, and certainly hadn't improved by 1944 so you could have had civil war very easily breaking out. I think it was more by luck than by judgment that that didn't happen and The fact is, as we went, the Allies landed in Normandy without French liaison officers, without the support of de Gaulle, uh, uh, without the full support of French forces and de Gaulle. And that could have very easily been solved had the Americans been less dogmatic about their, their insistence on immediate democracy.
2: There've been a great many books written about D-Day and Normandy. Are there any that you'd particularly recommend to someone who's listening who wants to find out more about this story?
3: Yeah, well, from the British perspective, I would definitely recommend the new book by John Buckley, Monty's Men. Um, it's less on the American side and it's less on the German side. I mean, it does what it what it says on the tin, so to speak. It is it is about the British effort in Normandy, um, and, and it's very good and very fair and very balanced and brings all sorts of um, draws on all sorts of of material, which is generally hasn't been brought together before so that's very good i mean if you want a sort of a, a great yarn of what happens in on d-day then you can't go far wrong with cornelius ryan to be perfectly honest i mean it's just a great story bearing in mind that it was sort of written in the 60s when a lot of the documents and papers that are now available weren't available to him um so for for, for entertainment I'd, I'd go for cornelius ryan for exciting new perspectives on the Normandy campaign and particularly the British involvement, definitely John Buckley.
2: You've got your documentary coming out and when this goes out will be in the next few days. Could you give us a brief idea of what people can expect from that?
3: Well, yes, I'm just trying to sort of open people's eyes. I think there's so many kind of very entrenched myths about D-Day and the Normandy campaign, which have become so entrenched, they've become sort of widely accepted. And I think sometimes, and a a 70th anniversary is a very good opportunity to do this, you need to just sit back and look at this stuff afresh and go, hang on a minute, that doesn't all quite add up. And and is there a new way of looking at this? And it's not revisionist for revisionist's sake. It's, It's just having a fresh set of eyes over a very well-trod subject and discovering that there are, in fact, a number of new perspectives which I hope will surprise people.
2: That was James Holland. Look out for his article on D-Day in the June issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Also this month, Derek Wilson explores a Tudor murder mystery, Admiral Lord West reveals the Royal Navy's impact on the 20th century, and we're kicking off a new series of oral histories of the First World War. You can get hold of our June issue in all good news agents and digitally, for Kindle, Kindle Fire, iPad, iPhone, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. James Holland's documentary, Normandy 44, will be broadcast on BBC Two on 9.30pm on Friday the 6th of June, which is of course the 70th anniversary of D-Day. James is also one of the organisers of the Chalk Valley History Festival, which takes place at the end of this month and features a fantastic line-up of speakers. For more details of that event, please visit cvhf.org.uk. And if history festivals are your thing, then don't forget that tickets are currently on sale for our 2014 History Weekend. Taking place from the 16th to the 19th of October in Malmesbury, Wiltshire, The festival features talks from dozens of leading historians, authors, and broadcasters. For more information and to purchase tickets, please visit the website historyweekend.com. And I should tell you that a couple of talks have already sold out, so please do get hold of your tickets soon to avoid disappointment.
1: Hola. Hello.
2: It's now time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarlane.
1: Archaeologists unearthing the remains of a Roman fort on the west coast of Cumbria have discovered what could possibly be a lost Roman harbour. Oxford Archaeology North and a team of volunteers who are excavating a settlement at Maryport Roman Fort have uncovered what is believed to be an earlier fort and lost Roman harbour to the north of the site. The team has also uncovered a variety of artefacts, including fragments of fine tableware imported from Gaul and the Rhineland, storage vessels that once contained Spanish olive oil, and several items of jewellery, including a jet finger ring and part of a decorated glass bangle. The project is helping researchers to better understand the daily experiences of those who lived at Maryport. Meanwhile, distant relatives of Richard III have lost their high court battle over where his remains should be reburied. The Plantagenet Alliance Limited, who are campaigning to see the former king reburied in York, challenged the Justice Secretary's decision not to consult further before granting a licence to the University of Leicester to excavate the remains. The licence also enables the university to decide where the remains are reinterred. But on the 23rd of May, the court announced that the Plantagenet Alliance's application had been unsuccessful. The judgment read, There are no public law grounds for the court interfering with the decisions in question. In the result, therefore, the claimant's application for judicial review is dismissed. You can read more about this story at historyextra.com.
2: Thanks for that, Emma, and don't forget to visit historyextra.com for all the latest history news. Tewkesbury Abbey in Gloucestershire has a long history that dates back to the 11th century. But it is for its role in the Wars of the Roses that the Abbey is often remembered, when a bloody battle for the Crown of England was fought in the fields that surround it. Our Features Editor, Charlotte Hodgman, met historian Sarah Gristwood at the Abbey to find out what led to the bloodshed of the 4th of May 1471.
0: Sarah, we're in the beautiful... um... Tewkesbury Abbey, um, just near to the battleground where the, the famous Battle of Tewkesbury took place. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about the background to the battle, um, what led up to it, and you know why it happened? The Battle of Tewkesbury
4: was what effectively ended the so-called Lancastrian re-adaption. So after ten years of Yorkist rule, Edward the Fourth on the throne. Warwick, the so-called kingmaker, made an unlikely alliance with the Lancastrians, with Margaret of Anjou, her son, and her husband, the deposed Henry VI. Mm -hmm. So they put Henry VI back onto the throne, uh, and briefly, Edward and his Yorkist forces had to flee into exile abroad. That happened in the autumn of 1470. However, in the spring of 1471, the Yorkists were back. Edward was back with, for, with new forces. Clarence, who was married to Warwick's daughter, Isabel, and who obviously had at first been, you know, allied with Warwick, mm-hmm. came over back to his brother's side. So by the time Battle of Tewkesbury came around, there were all three York brothers here, yeah. Edward... Clarence and Richard, Duke of Gloucester, the future Richard III, mm-hmm. and they met here the forces of Margaret of Anjou, the Lancastrian Queen, who was here with her son, the Prince of Wales.
0: And there had already been quite a serious battle at Barnet. Um, mm about a month prior to the Battle of mm. um which has seen the Lancastrians um, quite thoroughly defeated. Mm. What what made them carry on um, after that? Well,
4: for one, that means they didn't have very much choice but to carry on. Mm. But yes, the Battle of Barnet was fought on exactly the day that Margaret of Anjou landed back in England, mm. having spent, you know, obviously a long time of exile in France. But so she was greeted by this news that Warwick, her great powerful ally, had been killed. And the uh, the Chronicles report that understandably she was very heavy, Mm. massively distressed. But nonetheless, she had an army with her and she was trying to get across the Severn River into Wales where Jasper Tudor was also assembling forces. So there was still a very real Yeah. that they could have won you know edward had a huge victory at the battle of barnet yes and warwick was killed mm. but winning one battle doesn't win a war no. when they
0: met here you know it really i think it could have gone the other way yeah i mean margaret of Anjou, she sounds quite a formidable lady um was she the driving force think, behind this i mean she was sort of driving her son on wasn't she
4: I think there's no question that Margaret Mm. of Anjou was the driving force of the Lancastrian royal family, you know, with her great allies among the nobles, men like the Duke of Somerset. Her husband, Henry VI, after all, had had these long periods of insanity. That's what really forced, that's what really started, you know, the conflict, the turmoils, off and gave the Yorkists their opportunity. Her son was still a teenager of whom, you know, we don't know that much. No, it really was Margaret of Anjou who struck the all-important deal with Warwick.
0: Yeah. Ebba was actually executed Mm. after the battle. Well, there are question
4: marks over exactly what happened to Mm. Edward, the Lancastrian Prince of Wales, whether he died in the thick of the fighting, or Mm. very honourably, or whether, more likely, he was killed afterwards. And, of course, as soon as the Yorkist forces got back into London... Margaret of Anjou's husband shared the fate of her son. Henry Mm. VI also died that night. It was put out that he died of, quote, pure displeasure and melancholy. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think everyone knows what happened to him. But, of course, that really took Margaret of Anjou out of the game Mm. because then, with no son and no husband she had no cause for which to fight. Mm. So the Battle of Tewkesbury, what happened here really did
0: end the Lancastrian cause for yeah. the next decade and more. kind of makes you wonder what would have happened if um, Anne, because Anne was married, wasn't she, Anne Neville was married mm-hmm. to the Prince of Wales for yes, a little the Lancastrian, short time. Yes. Mm. What would have happened if they'd had a
4: son? A child. Mm. Well, absolutely. If Anne Neville had had a son by the Lancastrian Prince of Wales it would have given a cause. It would Mm. have given the Lancastrian cause someone for whom to go on fighting. But as it is in those months of 1471 once Henry VI and his son were both dead there wasn't anybody. Mm. Henry Tudor would not at that point have looked like an obvious Lancastrian candidate. Partly because of course his own Lancastrian blood claim Mm. was really pretty weak and also he was at this point himself still a teenager Mm. so he went into exile abroad with his uncle Jasper and it really did look as if the Lancastrian cause died Mm. here it's only later events it's only you know the fact that a dozen years later Edward IV died early of illness leaving again only a child to succeed him and then Richard III's takeover that fractured the Yorkist cause and gave the Lancastrians a new opportunity.
0: But no-one knew that the spring-summer of 1471. And, of course, it's thought that Edward, um, Prince of Wales, is actually buried quite near to where we're sitting Mm -hmm. now, um, just underneath the... um, The sun in mm splendour, yes.
4: Um, Which, of course, is the symbol of of the Yorkist dynasty, the the, the sons of York, yes. But, of course, the plaque and probably the painting are Victorian. Mm. Um, Yes, we know that Edward is buried here. And some time ago, apparently, they did find some bones which could possibly Mm. be those of of the Lancastrian prince but, a pen, you know, barring another Richard III yes. at Leicester
0: moment, we don't really know. Um, and of course the Abbey is also known um, it, was, it was used as a sanctuary, wasn't mm. it by some of the fleeing Lancastrians after mm. the battle, and it's, um, could you tell us a little bit about that?
4: Just yes, think? this is one of the most controversial things. Mm. The Abbey we believe that, you know, that Margaret of Anjou and those around her would have Sheltered here during the battle, maybe watched from the tower. Mm-hmm. But afterwards, as the Lancastrians, you know, were fleeing in defeat, many of them came into the abbey and tried to claim the right of sanctuary. And the stories vary. You know, one story says that that Edward and his men actually pursued them into a ch- into the church with drawn swords, which was, you know, a very shocking mm. thing to do, and that the abbot at that moment was actually celebrating mass at the high altar and advanced towards them, you know, with the host, mm. and that, that Edward then withdrew, but there, there was, you know, that, that may or may not be a romantic yeah. story, but Edward then withdrew. There was a huge debate, and effectively it was, it was reluctantly conceded that no... These men could not claim sanctuary here, uh, and there was a huge slaughter. So it's such a slaughter that it is said that the church had and the churchyard had to be reconsecrated, Though we've just been told that there aren't actually altogether mm. records of
0: that. How did um, people react to that mm. that that event? Um... Well, you see, here you come up against one of the
4: big. Mm issues about the history of the wars of the roses which is it was very much a propaganda war yeah see after all most people in the country wouldn't necessarily have known anything about what was happening here and when they were informed they'd probably have had the official yorkist version i mean i'm quite sure it caused shock and horror among Mm. all those who knew about the slaughter no. especially if there were you know acts of violence on consecrated ground but there are there are several different reports there's one the uh, the arrival the arrival of describing um edward edward's you know resumption of the of, of yeah. the throne which oh has him behaving in the most chivalrous fashion possible mm. you know so so i think one can't altogether assume that everyone in england then would have known no. exactly what had gone on
0: and that is kind of the image you, you have of him yeah. isn't it the sort of gold the tall, i know golden, golden prince yes yeah and, yeah and then to have this sort of event happening yeah. doesn't you know and, that's right and then also the death of of henry, of henry
4: under such suspicious circumstances mm. yes that's right but then of course later in the tudor reign mm. then you know the pole had swung right pendulum swung right round again so then we're hearing the lancastrian version and there'd have been every enthusiasm to tell you know how appallingly
0: yeah do you think do you think it happened in the abbey or
4: my guess is i'd have thought not in the abbey i'd have thought outside the actual doors yes Do we know how many? And we people? know. Well, we what we know, of course, is that the leaders were taken off, mm. and the next day there was a kind of nominal show trial in the marketplace, and they were ex, they were executed right. there,
0: yeah,
4: and buried here, and uh, buried
0: in what's now the shop, I yes. believe. <laughs> and And. Um what happened to um, to Margaret uh, of Anjou and also to Anne Neville? Who mm. t- were they around this area when mm. the battle was actually taking place? Well, Margaret was was
4: here, yes, certainly, and so we assume that most likely Anne was with her. But they fled. They were captured three days later, somewhere near Malvern, you know, mm-hmm. so sort of yeah. some miles away, having taken shelter in a, a poor religious house, is how the description went. Mm. And then you see Margaret had been such a powerful player, but now she'd become an irrelevance. Yeah. She had no one left for whom to fight. Yeah. She was taken as Edward's captive and I displayed, you know, in triumph, much the way that, that, that you know, mm. in, in, in the Shakespeare play it was said uh, Caesar would display Cleopatra. Yeah. But then she was, you know, first in the Tower, then in fairly lenient captivity, then after some years ransomed to France and died yeah. in obscurity and poverty. For Anne... It was a very different business. Mm. Anne hadn't been a player before then. As far as we know, you know, she would just have been married off on her father's orders to Margaret of Anjou's son, whatever her feelings about it. Now, on someone else's orders, on Edward's orders, she was handed into the care or custody of the Duke of Clarence, who was, of course, her brother-in-law, being married, you know, to to Warwick's daughter, other daughter, Isabel. And... You see, the thing is, with Anne, there went the chance of inheriting a huge amount of money. Mm. <laughs> and that probably is why Clarence wanted to keep, keep his ha- you know, her under his hands yeah. and why also Clarence's brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, wanted to marry her. Mm. And there were lots of stories that Richard was after Anne that Clarence actually kept her hidden, you know, hidden away. Mm. And that Richard had to smuggle her out. You know, there are stories of her being disguised as a kitchen yes, maid yes. before Richard married mm. her. And, I mean, some people like to think that this is, this was a wonderful romantic story, yeah. that Anne and Richard, who would have known each other in childhood, we're secretly in love. Well, anything's possible. But I'm afraid there's another story that says that Clarence said to Richard, to Gloucester, yes, fine, you can marry her as long as you don't have the money. Mm. And he wasn't interested. So, yes. He wanted he wanted the lands with the lady.
0: Sounds a little bit more likely, doesn't it? It does, doesn't, doesn't it, I'm <laughs> afraid. <laughs> um, and do you know much about the battle itself? I mean, we've, mm. earlier we had a look at this behind the sacristy mm-hmm. door. Um, yes. Which is, it supposedly has... Um, Pieces armor, of,
4: yes, of horse armour, probably, yes, um, taken and, by the monks to, to re- reinforce yeah. the door. Yes, we do. Um, there's a big sort of battlefield tra- trail that runs around the town mm. and the uh, horribly evocatively named Bloody Meadow. So, yes, we do pretty much know where the different forces came from. But there are some sort of, there are some key things about this battle that uh, resonate even for someone like me, who's no military historian. Mm. It was early May, but it was unseasonably hot weather. The day before, um, Margaret's army and the Yorkists behind them, they'd had this huge forced march, you know, Mm. because Margaret's army were trying to get across the Severn before Edward caught up with them. There was no food, there was no water, not even water for the horses so that, you know, the armies, particularly Margaret's, were exhausted. Yes, Edward, apparently Edward, you know, was, as he he always was, a clever campaign manager. He hid a, you know, party of horsemen in a wood. Um, So I'm sure the fighting would have been the usual appallingly bloody and brutal Mm. tale of medieval warfare, but with a few added elements. One, you know, the heat, the exhaustion, and also the treachery factor one of the main lancastrian commanders apparently went over to the other side or there are stories okay, went okay. over to the other side uh, and was you know pursued by his commanding officer mm. who beat his brains out with an axe you know
0: mm. crying treachery treachery uh so It did have a peculiarly vicious edge. Yeah. That seems to be a theme that kind of goes through this Mm -hmm. period, you know, of changing sides. Yes, it does. Well, that's it. I mean, I'm sure I started, as
4: most of us did, as a child when I heard of the Wars of the Roses. You hear red on Mm. one side, white on the other, all very neat. Yeah. Nothing like it. It's all about, you know, these queasy coalitions, shifting allegiances. Politics.
0: So we've crept down into um, a rather small little crypt in Cheatsbury Abbey, haven't we? And in front of us is a... A glass fish tank containing what may
4: or may not be the bones of George Duke of Clarence and his wife, Isabel Neville. And I can't believe I'm actually looking at literally a glass fish tank with a plastic container, the kind you put leftover rice in, in the kitchen, in this small claustrophobic space which is usually shut off from visitors, mm. but it's extraordinary. Yeah. We've just heard this story how an 18th-century mayor of the town thought that he and his wife outranked Clarence and Isabel and that therefore he may possibly have had the bones chucked out or chucked into a corner and replaced them with his own. I can feel a Richard III at Leicester yeah.
0: moment coming up. <laughs> Definitely, yes. It's a very um, it's very small in here, isn't it? I mean, very. You can touch it's, the ceiling. Yeah, you can touch the ceiling,
4: and you could almost touch both sides. Mm. You would never know it was here, would you? Really, it's yeah. just covered by a, a grate at the top. Grate and a, and a sign. Mm. But I mean, it is—it's it, very, very strange. We are literally looking at skulls
0: and various other uh, like bits of a pelvis, pelvis. I think. Yeah. Mm.
4: Yes. Or oh, whether well, yes, your anatomy is obviously <laughs> by and the skull is as far as I go. Yeah, but strange. I really never quite expected to be this close to what may be, you know, the mm. the skull of, of medieval royalty. So um what was Clarence doing at the time of the battle? Was he here fighting? Clarence was here fighting. All three of the sons of York were here fighting together, mm-hmm. which is a story in itself, because Clarence had started these months and this campaign as his brother Edward's enemy. Mm-hmm. Clarence had made an unlikely alliance with, with Warwick and with Margaret of Anjou, yeah. had married Warwick's daughter, so Warwick was promoting him as an alternative For the throne. But amazingly, Clarence then went back over to his brother Edward's side, and of course, that played a huge part in winning Edward the campaign.
2: That was Sarah Gristwood at Tewkesbury Abbey. You can read her feature on the battle in the June issue of BBC History magazine, which, as I mentioned before, is on sale now. And if you'd like to see images related to this podcast, including the fish tank of bones, please visit historyextra.com forward slash Tewkesbury Abbey. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com, and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. The debate about our theme tune continues to run, and one listener who's got in touch about that is Daryl Templar from California. Darrell writes... Every week, I look forward to your theme in the same way that I look forward to the theme announcing the BBC World Service on times past. In both cases, the content is richly varied. Please continue doing what you do so well. Thanks for that, Daryl, and do please keep your messages coming in. And as well as email, you can keep in touch with us on social media, follow us on Twitter at History Extra, or find us on Facebook where we are also History Extra and do make sure to check out our website historyextra.com for the latest news, quizzes, galleries articles and previous episodes of this podcast that go back to 2007 Next week we'll be broadcasting a special interview with the winners of this year's Wolfson History Prize and that episode will be coming out next Tuesday rather than next Thursday so do make sure you listen in early for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded on location in Tewkesbury and in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher